I'm Kendall Michelle Haney, and this is episode zero of Type in Tunes, TV Animation Writing 101. I'm thinking of this episode as a prologue of sorts to the actual podcast because it's a little different from future typical episodes where I'll be interviewing one writer to talk about one topic. In this episode, I've asked two of my animation writer pals, Isabel and Dan, to join me in answering some of the most common questions we get from writers just starting out, or even people who are just curious about what it is that we do. We try to answer most of those questions and do so as quickly as possible, but these are definitely broad stroke answers and a lot of these topics I'm hoping to revisit in future episodes to discuss more in depth. And as with all episodes of this podcast, these are just our experiences and we weren't able to cover every aspect of every topic. But the goal here is to give listeners an overview so that you have the information you need to get the most out of future episodes. And with all that being said, I hope you enjoy. So I'm here with Dan and Isabel, as I mentioned in the intro, and uh, I'm going to have them introduce themselves to kick us off. So Dan, do you want to start? Hello. Hello. I'm Dan Salgarolo. I've been working in animation for about seven years, and I've been an animation writer for about four of those years. Uh, so I have a background in animation production and writing. Uh, most of my work has been with uh, Cybertronians, but I have been fortunate enough to branch out a little bit in the last year. I've done some preschool work on the new Thomas and Friends, and I'm developing a sci-fi series for an overseas animation company. And I also write novels in my spare time. So that's me. As one does. Spare time novels. As one does. Yes. Isabel? Hello, I'm Isabel Galupo. I have been working in animation for about six years. And similarly to Dan and Kendall, I kind of started in animation production um, and moved over to the writing side full time only a little over a year ago, but I had been freelancing um, for a year prior to that. So um, yeah, I, most of my background is in preschool and specifically the preschool bridge space, but I'm currently a staff writer on a action adventure comedy <laughs> 22 minute for six to 11, which is really exciting. It's like four new things for me. Um, and I'm also a picture book author. I did not know that. Yeah. He's got a great picture book. Would you give us oh. the title so I don't mess it up? Yes, absolutely. It is uh, called Maiden and Princess, um, and I co-wrote it with my friend Daniel Hack, and it is a lesbian fairy tale love story. Oh. Because, of course it is. That sounds delightful. <laughs> Both of you will be returning by force to your own episodes, <laughs> but I appreciate you very much doing this one with me so that I'm not talking into the void. So to kick things off, we're going to start with sort of format. That seems like the the most natural place to start. And all three of us are mostly, I think, exclusively even in the kids' family space. Um, so what we're going to talk about today and what most of this podcast, other episodes will be about is the kids' family space. The adult primetime animation sort of its own separate world. I'm going to try and get someone on at some point to talk us through that because as far as I know, it's quite different. Who knows? Different guild, <laughs> different way of doing things, much more traditional writer's room situation. 
going to stay away from that. <laughs> but within the kids and family space, there's like three sort of sub genres. We'll go through them today. Those are the preschool, which is typically like two to five-year-olds, the bridge, which is more five to eight, sometimes four to six. It depends on the studio and the network and who you're talking to in the moment. And then there's the six to 11, which is what most people write and watch. Preschool is sort of its own little niche within the niche. Okay. So within all three of those, there are then different formats within them. So we're going to talk about the lengths. I'll start with the 22 minute format. And it's interesting. And I, I'd love to get your guys' thoughts on this too, because 22 minute format is essentially what a half hour on like a prime time or like on a network would be. Right. Um, yeah. And we get to 22 minute because we take away the time that it takes for commercials at the different act breaks or commercial breaks. But it's interesting because now with streamers and things like that, 22, I feel like 22 minute is like thrown out as like a equivalent to half hour, but it could also be because we're not really thinking about commercials for things like net, like straight to Netflix shows. It could be like, a, actually it's like 37 minutes or something. Yeah. But it's yeah. not, all it's not the place. full. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. I think that like, I've found that we still use this language, but it's the, it's getting looser, but essentially it started out as like a, it's a half hour storytelling format, take away commercial time, you get to 22 minutes. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's just a longer story. I think um, often in these kinds of uh, episodes, you'll get, you have the space to do like an A story, a B story, and then maybe sometimes like a C comedy runner in a way that um, for the shorter formats, you don't, you maybe don't even get to do the, the comedy runner or even really mm-hmm. that fully fleshed out of a B story. And so, so like, much glorious space. Yes, so much. And <laughs> some examples of that. I, I think typically nowadays, your 22 minute shows are more the action adventure. Mm-hmm. Like any straight up comedy, no matter what the age range is typically, not always, but typically more of the 11 minute. Whereas yeah. the 22 minutes, like your Shiraz and your, your gravity falls. Although right. it's interesting. And, and I think this is also where Kendall, to your point earlier, where you'll have experts who are not us on the more adult space, like the things like Big Mouth, um, Bob's Burgers, those are, those are 22 minutes and yeah. they are just like fully comedy. Um, and their I mean, I- network, they still have commercials. They're very traditional. Yes. That's what I'm saying. I think they run like a traditional sitcom writer's room too, where there's maybe 12, 14 writers. Right. In right. Many more writers. Yeah. Okay. What about uh, 11 minute? Well, yeah. So the 11 minute, as you may have surmised from Isabel's explanation of the 22, is basically a quarter hour, right? So 11 minute format. I'm pretty sure got its start with comedy and preschool animation. So it's shorter, faster, funner. And at least in the beginning with traditional broadcast and cable shows, uh, 11 minutes were pretty much always paired together to make a half hour um, with an A and a B episode. So if we think like SpongeBob SquarePants or The Rocketeer. Um, <laughs> so more recently, I think the 11 minute, as we were saying, uh, is breaking into the action space. So Transformers, Cyberverse, Justice League, action. Um, and it's it's become an extremely popular format since it easily fits into both the traditional broadcast form by pairing it together uh, to make a half hour, while also easily translating into that bite-sized length uh, required for online viewing, which you know, it's kind of the, it's this kind of assumption now that kids don't have the 
attention span, which I don't yeah. know if I fully believe. I don't but... either. I'm also thinking of uh, like Big Hero 6 is one where they started as a 22-minute show and then became an 11-minute show. And I don't know what the thought process was behind that, but I remember conversations at Disney of it being sort of the like kids need shorter, faster episodes, yeah. which is fascinating. Uh, did the overlords have spoken? Yes. <laughs> That's something else. We'll, uh, we will talk about that. Soon as well, <laughs> yeah. many there are many overlords in writing animation. Um, <laughs> and then the third sort of length is the seven minute show, which is the more rare. My favorite of which is Bluey, the uh, cutest Bluey. cartoon to Bluey ever exist. So good. Uh, <laughs> I feel like with the seven-minute shows, it's um, it's almost just like a short film. Like each mm -hmm. episode is, yes, I would say paced and structured more like a short film than a television episode. So those are like the formats as far as when you're broadcasting and how they're broken down. And then there's also different ways to go about making the shows and quote unquote writing them. There's sort of two main categories. So the first way of kind of yeah writing, crafting the story um, is what we call board-driven episodes. And I've actually never worked on a board-driven show before. So <laughs> please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, You're an expert. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> we'll believe whatever you say. Everyone in the comments is going to be like, how did you find this chick? Um, okay, so board driven is more of, it's it's more the story, um, some of those like, it's gags too, but it's more of those like concrete story points, right, that you see in every single episode. It's that it's de more determined by um, storyboard artists. And that's not to say that writers um, in the traditional sense, like the three of us are not on staff on the on board driven shows. It's more that um, writers, take it only up to a certain point. And I actually just realized in talking about this, I lied. I, w I have worked on one board you, project. <laughs> yeah, you had I, and I was going to ask and then I was like, maybe I'm wrong. No, 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 no. I did. And it's, I think I wasn't thinking about it because it was a, it's an interactive, it is a TV show, but it's, it was an interactive project. And right. Okay. So like a choose your own adventure. So it was a little bit different. So um, the writers on staff, the coordinator on that project and the writers on staff um, took in a traditional board-driven show, the writers will take it, like maybe write a full premise and maybe um, I've heard of them writing like uh, like joke gag sheets of just like like one, two pagers of just like all the different jokes, potential jokes or gags that could go and then handing that off right. to the board artists. Um, sometimes they'll take it as far as outline and then put those jokes in the actual outline and then hand it off. Um, and then the one project that I did work on that was born driven that I'm now remembering, um, <laughs> the, the two writers did basically like um, an outline plus. So um, okay. they they wrote all the different scenes like the the and it, again it was so complicated because it was. Um, it was an interactive project so it was like it was a, a ton of writing and it was like all the different like possible story combinations yeah. that could ever exist um so they did they did a ton of work on that it was really incredible and they it, they fleshed out the scenes kind of fleshed out where the characters like kind of like whatever the arc of each character in the scene and then they they went ahead and like really did flesh out some dialogue as well um but a lot of the the staging and the the kind of physical gags um that was going to be left up to the board artists um and that one, again, it was a little bit more regimented because they had to do so there, 
I think something that happens in board driven shows is that because the the board artists are are essentially writers as well. Sometimes they're given an outline and that's their starting point, but then they'll plus and add a lot of things, not just gags, not just dialogue, but like things that will move the story forward in different ways. Right. Um, so it's it's there's a there's just a more more potential for collaboration and like everyone getting their ideas, you know, on on the page. Yeah. Right. And would we say that we would generally see a more board-driven shows are more for comedy and script-driven shows more action? That's kind of what I, it's interesting because that, again, that Choose Your Own Adventure project that I was on is, was very much action. It was definitely comedy uh, forward, but it was, yeah. it was like a big epic action adventure wow. uh, into like, mm. like fantastical places. Um, yeah. And the creators were incredible on their, their artists themselves. So I think they had always run shows and it, mostly right. comedy shows too, to your point, Dan, like, um, you know, they had run it in that board driven way. But I think because it was so epic and adventurous, that's why they were like, okay, we're going to, we're going to do like outline pluses and there's going to be a lot less right. room for board artists to add things at the end. Um, right. They definitely modified <laughs> because there was just so many different tracking things and things that affected other things from scene to scene. Um, but I think, I think your, your instinct is correct there about mm. comedy versus um, more story, you know, action-y adventure. Right. I also I, uh, can't, I can't think of any preschool or bridge shows that I've heard of that were board driven. I think hmm. mostly that six to 11 space and typically comedy yeah. gag driven. And yeah. that, I don't mean that in a negative way. I firmly believe storyboard artists yeah. are writers, it just yes. in a different format. But I do think that's sort of the trend or like, like depending on how the showrunner came up, like if they came up through okay. storyboarding, then they might be right. comfortable in that format. So they have a board driven show versus right. an EP that came up through or, writing. Or they have a script driven show and they change things. That can happen as well. <laughs> Yeah, that's well, the collaborative so, so, process. Yes. <laughs> so this is actually something I was going to mention, but like, I'm, so for a script-driven show, the opposite, um, it uses the primarily the written word as its blueprint, right? So, I mean, even down to the uh, writer calling out shots and angles and transitions, but depending on the style of the people running the show and they way, the way they like to delegate, the final animation may stick very closely to the final script, or it may deviate depending on the input of the artistic team, the directors, the board artists, the voice actors. Um, and like we were saying, I've known, I've known showrunners who come from a storyboarding background who are on a script-driven show and will then completely rewrite a locked script sure. during the storyboard or the animatic process. But ostensibly the purpose of a script-driven show is to save that kind of structural work for the early stages, right? Tricky, I'll say, because you want you want at each step you want it to get plussed and get yes, quote unquote, improved. But if there's too many changes, then it can mess up the whole pipeline. And and knowing how much detail to put in the script to help the board artist versus putting too much and dictating to the board artist yeah. who might want to yeah. bring their own ideas. It's a lot like writing for actors as well. Like there's, there's yeah. something to be, there's a nice, th there has to be a balance of like, you know, when I'm writing a line of dialogue and I, 
you know, know the voice actor who's going to be saying it. And I have this very, or I know what that, what that line means for the scene and what, what it's going to do to push the story forward. I have a very clear Mm -hmm. idea of what I, how I want the line to be performed, but you also, I mean, like we've all worked with like just incredible, incredible voiceover artists who have been working for like so much longer than we have. And so there, there's also, you know, you don't want to over direct um, and, you know, just in every line, put a parenthetical or like explain to the, to the yes. actor how to say it, because there's, there's a level of trust that you need to have for them and their craft that they're going to bring something to the table that might surprise you. It might not be exactly what you're thinking, but still work and get to the end goal. So it's, it's all about trusting your creative collaborators and it's a constant yeah. negotiation. Like what that looks like day to day shifts. Yes. Okay. Let's walk through the life of an episode. This is something I had no idea about until I was literally writing my first episode. And I was like, oh, what's, yes. what is that? How do yeah. I do that? <laughs> so for the purpose of this sort of exercise walking through it, we'll talk about both links for 11 minute and 22, since those are the most common. So what do we start with? After you pitch an idea, oh. we'll say to your story editor and or showrunner, and they say, yes, I like that nugget of an idea. Write it up as a I know I know Dan Dan go Dan <laughs> it's a it's called a springboard which is slightly longer than a log line purpose of a springboard right is to is to kind of figure out if the kernel of an idea is going to work within the format of the show yeah. uh, a head writer who is looking to approve a springboard might ask a couple of questions they might ask uh, does it have all the elements for a successful episode of the show does it feel like the show or is it too similar to other episodes we've done? So in my experience, uh, a springboard can be as short as a few sentences long, but if I were, so if I were to ask to write a springboard without any direction at all as to how long it should be, which never happens, I probably would not exceed a hundred words as a rule of thumb. But again, these things really vary according to the taste of the overlords we talked about. Yes. Uh, and, And as far as 11 minute versus 22, I have found personally that that the length of a springboard for an 11 or a 22 is roughly the same because when you're at that super broad level of describing an episode idea in a few sentences you're not getting into the kind of uh, detail that would permit that discrepancy uh, in length but but that being said I mean an experienced eye can look at a springboard for an 11 minute and say that idea is too big for the format Uh, and either cut it or tweak it um, yeah, springboards, not necessarily easy to write, but very easy for an executive to kill. Yes. And <laughs> depending on the executive or even the showrunner or story editor, whichever level you're trying to get it past at the time, sometimes shorter is better. Just give them a little idea so that they'll just be right. like, yeah, I can't wait to see more. But sometimes they need to see more before they can make a decision. On the last couple of shows I've been on, I've coined the phrase spremis because our springboards got so long up to a page, which is sort of absurd. That's what it took. (laughs) At that point, it's a premise. Great segue, Isabel. What is a premise? Yes. Well, I will tell you what it is, but I did want to mention one thing about springboards that I found um, really helpful just in terms of like craft and like knowing what what makes a good story. I think like in the springboard and in every single iteration 
that comes after a springboard as well. You need to know who the story is about, what they want, and like what challenges they're going to come up against in order as they're trying to get their want. And I think if those three things are present in the springboard, it makes it a lot easier for people to get on board yes. with the idea or be like, okay, I really like this obstacle. And I like that it's about this character, but I think this character would want something else, you know? Um, mm -hmm. Another quick thing on that note is um, a springboard. Usually you'll just be told like, write that up today. You might yes. have a little pitch meeting yeah. and they're like, yes, I like that kernel of an idea, go write it up. And that you usually just get like an afternoon maybe to write those. They're very quick. Cause you don't know if it's going to. Right. You don't want to spend too so much like, time on yeah. it. Yeah. Because it, it could die and you don't want to be in moments. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it also, uh, it also depends also right on, on um, how, or the generation of springboards rather depends on the people running the show, the style of show. Yeah. Right. So like on a serialized, show where the story arcs are like firm and set in place you you might not have springboards at all or right. uh, they might all be generated by the head writer uh, or a writer's room or a story summit uh, and yeah. then delegated out mm, but then on mm -hmm. like a procedural show you might have a format where a freelance writer is provided a show bible and then asked to pitch several springboards to the showrunner uh, and then the showrunner decides which if any they like and have the writer expand upon that yeah. uh, right a great point yes um so now you have a springboard you know whether or not you were handed it from a summit whether you pitched it in a freelance situation or a staff situation um it's been approved by the Ooh. overlords Ooh, woo, woo. um <laughs> you are ready to go to premise and a premise is just kind of a fleshing out of the the different acts of your episode with with attention paid to um and again this is going to vary depending like I've been on shows where you know they were like we're a very strict four act structure you know your your low moment has to hit at this literal like page whatever page nine that's when you're hitting it and no no sooner no less your midpoint is whatever so there's certain you know depending on what the the parameters are that are set forth by your showrunner or your story editor, the premise is the document where those things are very clear, uh, like what's your midpoint, what's your low point, what's your turning point, all that stuff. And not only are those points clear, but it's clear how you get from the start of the episode to the midpoint, from the midpoint to the low point, to, you know, all of those things. It's, it's kind of the mechanics of, the story mechanics of how you get from uh, story beat to story beat to story beat and broad stroke I would say broad, yes broad yeah. strokes it's Mechanics, not yeah. yeah it's and it's not like you're not getting as in-depth as like uh you know angle on this character as they cross to this character you know you're not you're not talking about the, right. the the characters in seeing how they're getting from from point a to point b um, physically, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. maybe emotionally, or um, it's a it's a summary sure. of those actions. And you know, in an eleven minute, you see a premise about a page long, um, and in a twenty two minute, it's about two and a half to three pages. In in my experience, uh, maybe yeah. a little over three sometimes too. Um, and I I think Kendall and I and I I'd love to hear Dan your experience. We come from kind of the the land of no dialogue in premises. <laughs> um, yeah. 
But I, it's interesting because the show that I'm on now, it's an ensemble cast and there's just so many different voices that our story editor has started to say, okay, you can put dialogue very minimally in a premise. Um, it's like if you're introducing a new character, give them a line to kind of just establish characterization. Mm -hmm. um, you mm -hmm. can do a line of dial for a joke, but it's not not to be overused. Yeah, it's typically like in a perfect world, I think a premise would be three paragraphs, like a act one, act two, act three paragraph. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And just simple prose. This is a story. This is the yeah. story. I, I've, I think they end up getting more complicated than maybe they need to be or the yes. writing team would like them to be because again, you're, it's a sales document. Each step of these is getting yep. the executives in the studio and the network to buy off on it and say, yes, keep going. Right. So whatever you need to put yes. in there to get that buy off is sort of the goal. Right. Whether it be more, more detail or less. And it's interesting yeah. to you. I, I, I find too that premises, not only is it the story mechanics and how you get from point A to point B and hit all those points, but it's also like, there's a weaving of theme that you kind of have to do. Yeah. It's almost like some, I sometimes do it retroactively of like, and especially when you're thinking about kids media too, I think this is much more prevalent in preschool though. I mean, I've definitely worked on six to 11 projects that they're like, what's the theme of this episode? What's the lesson they're learning, you know? And mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. so I, there's there's a little bit of that that you have to do in a premise as well because it is that sales document. Like it's- To the it's, point where- it even like they have you put theme up top in bold, like at yep. the top of the premise, right yeah. under your name and yep. the title is mm -hmm. the theme. And then they're like, prove it in the next page and a half. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And it's it's interesting. It's The premise is not the stage to kind of like show off your actual vision for each scene, right? It's it's right. the It's the overall vision for the episode, the theme, what you're trying to say mm -hmm. um, uh, in a broader sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and yeah, same thing. No dialogue, almost never, unless it's like something really witty that you right. want to be like. Yes. Yeah. The occasional There's joke. Uh, but you have to make sure, sure that that joke is hilarious. Oh, yeah. It has to be the space. best. <laughs> yeah, and they'll just cut it. Yeah. So <laughs> make sure it's great or it won't get through by the time you're at script. Yeah. Once you get the premise approved, then it's time to go to outline, which I would argue, this might be controversial, is the most important step in the in the episode process. I'm getting a thumbs up from Isabel. Yes. Oh, oh, sorry. Dan's into it too. Yes. The outline, so typically, I would say on almost all shows, I've been on some where they just say, okay, go to outline. But typically, you do what's called a story break before you write your outline, where if you're on staff, it's all the writers in a room together. If you're freelance, maybe they'll bring you in for that. Maybe they'll do it without you and just send you the story break. It just kind of depends. But in that meeting, you will go act by act, beat by beat, and decide what scenes you're going to have and what's going to happen in each scene. You do that based off the approved premise and then also any notes from the overlords. <laughs> to me, the, the reason the outline is so important is if you get that right, the script should be very quote unquote yes. easy because at that point it's just fun filling in dialogue and any extra space you might have for an 11 minute show I think outlines are typically like five to six pages has been mm -hmm. my usual 
and uh -huh. then for 22 minute eight to 12 i've worked on some that have gone up to maybe 13 or 14 if it's like a big um thinking of an action show i was on where we were very detailed with our fight choreography so it took up over explaining much space on the yeah. page uh -huh, uh -huh. and we also included a lot of dialogue in those outlines so it truly i had one that i put the outline into script format and i was over page count yeah <laughs> <laughs> i was like my job in the script is literally just to cut uh, from the outline yeah. yeah well i think that's good right you're you're kind of coasting it's it's nice at that point and you get to have a lot more fun with the script yes. every i mean mm -hmm. every story editor that i know ha always leans on the outline and it's like you know take your time with the outline make the outline work as a as a script coordinator writer's assistant drawing up a writing schedule i would always give more time to the outline than i would mm, for the first draft smart. of script speaking of i forgot to mention a premise i would say a premise depending on the show you might get two or three days to write mm -hmm. a premise um yeah. maybe just one if it's an 11 minute show and they're like you know just right write this up today but i say one to three days and then the outline like dan's saying if you can take two weeks i think it helps you once you get to script so i've been on shows where you get a week for outline i've been on some 22s where you do get the two weeks but yeah it's got sort of everything in it when it's done right and it's it's similar it's still a word document but it's got all the scene headings some people put transitions in um yeah. so it's starting to look more like a script but the dialogue's not broken out by character it's that's still in paragraph prose format mm -hmm. i love right. an outline yeah uh, i outline. i can't agree more i think also outline because it's so crucial. I struggle with writing outlines the most, I would say, because I think maybe subconsciously the pressure, but also it's it's that thing of like, you know, you write in a premise that, you know, character A does a cool trapeze move to get to character B. In the outline, you have to figure out, okay, like where are they doing trapeze moves? So like what like what what is the location that is actually big enough to write? Like, do we need to build that? that could be a production concern, you know, fight with your uh, production team, have it approved. And then you're like, okay, great. We have a trapeze room. Uh, okay. Interior trapeze room. <laughs> <laughs> then you're like, okay, well, what is a cool trapeze move? Like, what are the props that you need to, that trapeze artists use? Like, if this character needs to end up to get to this other character to tell them something, we need to establish where that other character is. And so you're really like, if, if a premise is about the story mechanics of like how things happen that affect other things and have the story unravel and, and you know, more obstacles, hilarity ensues, the, the outline is like, it's, it's even more nitty gritty than that. It's mm -hmm. like, okay, literally, how do we get this character to do this thing that they need to do in order to tell this other character an important piece of dialogue that's actually gonna move the overall story forward. So it's right. just, yeah, I really struggle with, I think I take big swings in a premise and then I'm like, oh my God, I don't know anything about this. And, I, and then I'll get in, you know, classic writer, get in my head about being like, why did I do this? Like, I, I made a mistake. I can chew. Yeah, mistakes were made. The worst is if uh, you decide to cheat it at outline though, and then have to figure those details out at script, which is never a good idea. No, it's... It's not a mistake until your production manager comes up to you and says, you put in how many props? Yeah. <laughs>
And yeah, don't worry 100%. about it. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, it, well, you can reuse it. Just put this character in a hat. <laughs> that counts as a new model. Yeah. A new model. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, okay, so you spend the time, you sweat, you get through the outline. It finally gets approved after 10 drafts. Yeah. And you get to the fun, yeah. the most fun, I would argue, part. You've done the heavy lifting and now your reward yeah. is yeah. a script. Yeah, I think it's the most fun part. I think, I mean, I think the biggest, if we can impart anything, well, I'm speaking for you guys, I'm sorry. If I can impart anything onto any listener who is interested in the animation career, I would say that I'm going to reiterate, take your time at outline, make it the best that you can. And then when you get yeah. to script, unless you're getting, unless you've gotten specific notes from studio network, your story editor, showrunner, do not deviate from the outline. I just think you're going to make it harder for yourself. Um, you've poured all these blood, blood, sweat, tears into getting this massive document approved. You've figured out the trapeze props. you figured yep. out how they're going to do the cool move over to the other character. So don't make it harder for yourself. Just use the outline as kind of like the skeleton for your draft literally you can just copy paste the approved word document format it into your final draft thing and then if you have this you know you have the skeleton you have this final cord this is a gross metaphor then now you're putting like the muscle and oh. the skin on top right oh <laughs> yes you're not wrong I but I'm just picturing the trapeze. I'm picturing a skeleton doing the trapeze and then a, and then a muscle. A, yeah. A skeleton, a muscle tin. Muscle. Muscle tin. Yeah. We'll go with muscle tin. And then a skinnet. That's a, Mr. Muscleton. Yeah. Oh, wow. We're going we're gonna to pitch Mr. Muscleton after this. Uh, <laughs> but that's where really the draft, like, um, you know, it's, it's making sure the character, once you have that skeleton and you, you have all of the pieces in play, that's where you get to have the fun. You make the character voices really pop. Um, yeah. You ha have fun with verbal jokes. You can, um, you know, there, there's definitely still room to, to have physical gags that may, maybe not, weren't as apparent in the outline. Um, I think sometimes physical gags will come up in outline, um, but it's really, again, about how do we get this character to do this thing that's going to move the story forward and then once you get all of that out of the way you can have fun in the draft and, and add those little those fun little touches yeah, yeah. typically uh i keep saying typically because every show is so different but typically you'll do a official first draft second draft polish each of those going mm -hmm. to the overlords but you can then have multiple steps internally within each draft, depending on the structure of your show and who needs to read it before it goes to the overlords. Yes, absolutely. Because writing and is rewriting, guys. Have you ever heard that? Oh, yes. <laughs> and how long, uh, how long are we talking for these scripts? Yes, yeah, so, uh, I mean, it really, again, depends. Typically for an 11 minute, 15 to 18, I would say, I guess I just relanced on a, a show and I was able to get it to 15. Um, but I've been on 11 minute shows where we've gotten 18, 19, 20. <laughs> and, 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 but there's, there's generally like a, a reason for that, right? Which is they tend to be more dialogue heavy. 
the preschool yeah the like 11 minute preschool definitely 11 minute preschool because it's like you can't it's really tough to there are definitely some physical gags that you can do in a in a preschool 11 minute that are self-explained like a like someone playing in mud or a kid falling over any animal any animal like giving yeah a look to the camera or you know getting having their own side adventure that doesn't need to be called out by a character but if like with preschool you have to watch out for like um if pre-readers are watching your show which they often are because they're geared towards pre-readers um like you can't have I remember there was a, a episode where I wrote a character giving one of our characters a business card and I had to like write out in scene direction he hands a business card that you know this is what it said on the business card this is what it looked like on the business card and then I had to have the character who's receiving the business card read what the business card said so it's like there's there's it takes up yeah exactly yes right yeah something that happened in in you know the blink of an eye yes uh, on screen but is a lot longer represented on the page yeah I've seen some like uh if you know even beyond preschool of going to like Rick and Morty for example I've seen some Rick and Morty scripts that almost get to 40 pages because there's just constant dialogue <laughs> yeah 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 so like for a 22 minute show it's more like yes sorry 22 minute yeah right 26 to 30 ish pages um I wanted to bring up that just yesterday on Twitter where all productive discussion happens um uh. There was a bit of a tizzy about specifically ana- TV animation scribbling. And and no one said kids, but it seemed like they weren't talking about the primetime stuff like we've mentioned. It was more our realm. And um, so one side was very intense about the fact that they should be much shorter than the typical what we've been seeing. So they were calling yeah. for 23 to 25 pages for 22 minutes and 12 to 15 pages for 11 minutes. And when I first read it, I was like, that's crazy, that's bananas. There's no, I could not ever, because I worked on a show where our 22 minute scripts were 38 pages. And it's because we were very detailed in the fight choreography or in Mm -hmm. any kind of action. Mm -hmm. And we called out pretty much every shot, which was not something the boarders had to stick to. It was just a jumping off point. And it was to give ourselves accurate length, like we got it down to a science yeah. that length equal 22 minutes. So at first I was like, what are these people talking about? That's much too short. But then I read more because I don't want to be a Twitter monster. And, um, <laughs> and the discussion continued and it was essentially board artists being on the side of shorter scripts because what happens a lot of times is they board the whole 28 pages. And then once it's cut into an animatic, they're three minutes over. Mm-hmm. Up cutting all yeah. the work and it was a waste of time for the board artists and I was like oh okay that's very fair yeah and so then it just becomes a each show needs to decide at the top what works for that show as far as page count to mm-hmm. the screen but the other thing that was funny is a lot of artists were like uh as long as they don't write fight ensues or then the chase happens and leave it at that yeah. and I've never seen that in a actual script and I it terrified me for those board artists. I was like, how many shows are actually just writing then the fight happens and also yeah. in a 28, 30 page script without ever saying what the fight was? Of course they're gonna come in long. 
there are kind of like these 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 rules of professional courtesy, right? That that go between that people uh, forget writers, way too often. Writers and board artists <laughs> that people forget or or never learn or forget. There there are these some you know kind of unwritten rules like you know don't say fight ensues and you know don't go crazy over page count. Um, but then there are also you know like things that that vary from from show to show, from showrunner yeah. to showrunner, from board artist to board artist. And like we would, uh, it sounds to me like, you know, going three minutes over in an animatic is something that happens in your first couple yes. episodes, right? And mm -hmm. then you learn from the process and you fix it. If you're not doing that, there's, there's, there's all sorts of problems, not even just in, in uh, script and it doesn't just come from script you know it could, that can come from any uh, like bunch of other parts of the production like you're not being you know the writers aren't being maybe managed properly or um you know overboarding like these i think these sounds like twitter blew up something that is a big big problem for everybody <laughs> yeah well it's also yeah. it's why in a perfect world you make a pilot episode first so you can test out all those things and more and more shows aren't doing that so you're right. you're writing episode eight before they've even boarded episode one and right so you have no idea what it's gonna come out as once you record it and edit it but the train's already way down the road and now mm -hmm. you've got a bunch of 38 page scripts and they should really be 24 page scripts Right. And then, you know, someone has to go back and in those seven scripts that have, yeah, <laughs> someone, the story editor showrunner has to go back uh, and, uh, you know, those seven episodes that have been written, they have to go back and retroactively cut stuff and then catch everyone up to speed on, okay, these are the new things, you know, that are, that we have to accommodate going forward. Yeah. I think the key is just, I wish and it's getting harder and harder too with the freelance model being more popular because yeah. when you're all in the same office, you can have those conversations. When I'm on shows where yes. I'm on staff in an office and the board artists are in-house, they can just come by and be like, hey, this seems yeah. too long. Do we have to board the whole thing? Or can we talk about a, a new way to approach it? And you just fix it right there as opposed to now where you're like sending your script off to some studio. You don't see any boards. Right. They completely do it and maybe even cut it right. into a animatic and then send it back and it's like well if you just told us or asked or if we had any conversation we could have saved everyone a lot of pain right uh, communication again and this is why you know with freelancing and i was was as we were kind of segueing into to freelancing um one of the best things you can do as a freelancer is ask your story editor what they need you know mm -hmm. and then do it because mm -hmm. like in this in this process where where you know you're a freelancer at your own desk in your own home writing something for someone else who is super plugged in to or hopefully super plugged into the process like you need to make their life easier because mm -hmm. there's already so many ways to have miscommunications and, and that kind of thing yeah um, i completely agree and that is a wonderful segue those are sort of the two ways in which you work as an animation writer you're either freelance or you're on staff and uh, even though your work is the same they're pretty different pretty life different. situations yep freelancer freelancer is such an evocative exciting word isn't it 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 conjures <laughs> it conjures pirates and assassins and don't people be fooled. generally 
chart their own path, right? It's not at all close to the reality. It's very romantic. Yeah. <laughs> You've got, you can work your own hours and yeah. don't go into an office. I'm a pirate in that I sit at my desk and have existential dress dread as I work on my unpaid personal <laughs> projects and wait for the next paid gig to show up. But no, but, but, but <laughs> a successful freelancer uh, um, versus a uh, staff writer they do have a lot more flexibility, right? To make their own schedule, make their own hours, simply by the nature of the fact that they're contracted for one script at a time, as opposed to nine to five. Um, and I think the goal of being a successful freelance writer, which is easier said than done, should be to kind of keep the jobs coming, have overlap with your contracts so that you are constantly gainfully employed. But sometimes that means that you could be working on three scripts at a time and be totally underwater. And sometimes that means you have crazy dry spells. But you know, if you want to be a permanent freelance writer, you'd rather not be saddled with a staff job. Um, listeners should know that it is in some ways harder to do. The work to pay ratio for freelance writers is higher than that of a staff writer, i.e. Uh, working purely on freelance scripts, you'd have to work more hours to make the same amount of money on average. That a staff writer does. That's kind of the price of freedom, as it were. <laughs> I think it's interesting creatively. I think a pro in the freelance column is that working on many things at once, potentially many yeah. things at once. Because then, I don't know, it feeds you in a different way because you can bounce to, like, if you're stuck on one thing, you can bounce to a different one or even yes. just flexing different types of storytelling muscles from week to week, I think can be really exciting. And it's Absolutely. Also, yeah kind of vital to to your own survival if you want to yeah and and this is something that i do have to do to varying degrees of success not terribly successful uh but um you always want to be working on the craft and and even if you have if you even if you don't have a paid job always finding something to write something to work on and trying to learn new styles different mm -hmm. genres of writing so that you can one of my story editors called it the tripod, right? Having your your hands in three different types of writing so that mm -hmm. you can draw on one when the other's dried up, right? I like that. Right now there's a ton of preschool work, you know, so it's good to have a little bit of preschool in your in your resume and your samples um, uh, as opposed to action adventure. And, you know, the scale will probably tip backwards at some point, but it's good to be a... a uh, diverse in your your um, your portfolio and your tools when it comes to being a freelance writer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, something that I think too um, to your great point, Dan, is like um, there, especially with preschool. I think there's kind of this antiquated notion that if you work on a preschool project, yeah. you will be like brandished a preschool writer for the rest of a your baby life. writer like, yeah you're yeah you're a little baby and you have to go to baby island and you can't ever get any other jobs and like I even think that that is true there's kind of a um again like a more outdated notion of that about animation right like I, mm -hmm. I think there are like more logistical hurdles just because the animation industry is so insular and it, yeah. and it feels very separate and like even just like the right like the hierarchy of a room or a production is very different on an animation production than a live action production but I think now like I feel so lucky that we're all coming up in this industry at this time where like there's so much 
back and forth. Like you're not, if you work on one preschool thing, like you can then turn around and work on a six to 11 project and then turn yeah. around and work on an adult animated project. And then like pitch a live action, hour long drama pilot, and then go back to preschool animation. Like there's just, there's just not those barriers yeah. anymore. And people aren't afraid. <laughs> like I think people who are in hiring positions also aren't afraid to like, to hire someone who has a range. Um, Cause it used to be that like, you know, we're looking for people who have experience and skill and like, and, and and those are important, of course, when getting a job, but it, you know, I think it used to be that it's like, you have to have proven that you're a preschool writer by, or six to 11 writer, because you have eight, six to 11 credits yeah. or preschool credits or whatever. And it's like, um, you don't, that's not really the case anymore. I think people are, are really more open to, to kind of just hiring people who have a variety of experiences um, mm-hmm. and that you can have a variety of, of experiences throughout the entirety of your career. Like you don't have to test it out, test everything out for a different period of time, but then ultimately settle down in one. Like there right. are so many people that I think all three of us know who have made incredible careers and who are just continuing to diversify and, and bounce back and forth between different mm-hmm. genres and mediums and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, they're, they're- for sure something really nice about having that 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 freedom to you know be able to bounce over to all sorts of different stuff and and as writers you know we, we do uh i don't think i know any writer who who wants to just do you know bridge shows or just six to eleven action adventure right we all have kind of like you know you write picture books you know i'm like off doing my novel over here you know sometimes we all like have these disparate you know interests and ideas but then again, it is nice to have a steady job <laughs> from yep. time to time. Staffing. Staffing. Yeah. Staff staffing, staffing is tight. Hot take. Yeah. Super <laughs> controversial. <laughs> staffing rocks. Yeah. Uh, steady, steady gig is awesome. No, uh, staffing is great. And it, and, you know, I think, and we can maybe talk about this a little bit later too, of just like the things that, Staffing isn't like a death sentence to to variety and creativity oh, yeah. and, and all that kind of stuff that we were talking about. Like, I think if, you know, um, for example, I'm staff right now, but I also have a, a project in development at, a, at another studio and my agent was able to like have a carve out in my contract uh, for that. And, um, and, and it wasn't a problem, right? Like there are ways that you can still solidify and like yeah. um, other gigs, in a kosher way, right? Like in a, in a way where it's, it's not a conflict. Yeah. Just to um, so. briefly jump in to say that, uh, sometimes when you're staffed, you are exclusive. So, yeah. so that's why Isabel mentioned she got a carve out for that project. So sometimes when you're on staff, yes. it can mean you're not supposed to quote unquote work on other things at the same time, but there are right. some studios where the show I'm on right now, I'm non-exclusive. So I'm free to, even though I'm staffed freelance on anything else. Um, and then if you're also doing development stuff, you can just put that in your contract. That's allowed. So there are ways to do many things at once. And then there are sometimes when you have to just decide, do I want to staff and only work on this? Right. Even if that means no, saying no to other things. Ostensibly an exclusive deal means more money as well. Yeah, right. it definitely can. Yeah, they're, they're, paying gonna... to, they're paying to keep you working on their stuff. And we'll talk about guild and non-guild in just a minute, but that can also play a part. If they're non-guild, you can use that as like a, that's fine, but that means I can work on other things because I need health insurance. We'll get to that. Right. 
Um, but yeah. All the games we play. So many. <laughs> um, yeah, so a staff gig um, is essentially when you sign a contract. It's usually, I think it's always season to season. Sometimes you can sign a contract for a staff gig and they'll have something like a contingency period. So there's like mm -hmm. a, a 90 day trial run where you're on staff, but you're kind of, uh, you know, they're reviewing your performance um, to just make sure that it's a good creative fit um, for all parties involved and yourself too. It's kind of a nice way for writers as well um, to at the end of the 90 days, just be like, I don't know if I'm really, you know, like I read the Bible and I, you know, in the interview, I thought it was an awesome thing and I'd be a good fit, but I actually don't know if I am there there's kind of that period um but if you go through the 90-day trial period and all is good everyone happy then you're essentially a staff gig will usually um be you'll sign a, a contract for a season or or multiple seasons but with the opportunity right between seasons to kind of to take a pause and be like do i if, you know i i wrote all the way through season one and it was great and i'm definitely on you know game for season two or there's a period of time to be like you know what actually like I had a great time in season one but I want to explore other opportunities I'm going to bow out and uh -huh. then, like, that gives the studio and your showrunner and all and everyone involved in the hiring process enough time to kind of find someone else for a season two to take your place but so essentially you get a staff gig you you figured out your agent has figured out potentially your your contract you know the the time that you are obligated to them. And um, basically, you know, I've been in rooms, I've been staffed in rooms where there are three to four writers, staff writers, um, and then like a story editor level person. Um, I think that it can be, it, it, again, it's a show to show thing. Um, I know some shows like at Nickelodeon have like six, seven writers. It just depends on what the, what the budget is and what the needs are. And so as a staff writer, you know, you and your other fellow writers, you'll get put on what is essentially, hopefully you'll get put on <laughs> a writer's rotation. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't want to make any promises that I can't keep. That other people can't keep. Yeah, if it was, if, if I had the power, I would make it like legally binding for every staff writer to, <laughs> to have to be in a writer's rotation because it's like the only thing that, I just think it's such a huge help, um, right? And so what I'm talking about in when I'm talking about a writer's rotation, right, is that let's say you have five staff writers in a room, you you say, okay, this is the rotation. It's gonna be Kendall, Isabel, Dan, you know, and their other two writers. And oh, then phew, I'm in the rotation. <laughs> oh, thank God. Oh. You're in the rotation. And Dan, you're three. So it's every right. So if you're three oh, is perfect. Is I get to see, you know, like the first two people do their thing, get to like gauge like yeah, when yes. the story editor gets mad at stuff. And then I, I'm, I'm sitting pretty. You're not the guinea pig. Yeah, no, that's, <laughs> that's such a good, a good point. You want to be in the, in the mid of the rotation for sure, <laughs> especially when you're first starting out. Um, so yeah, so, so let's say you're three in the rotation. So then, and then you have two other writers after you. So it's every five episodes basically is you, if you have that kind of established schedule structure in the room, you know, you can look right when you get in a, in a room and you're staffed, um, you get handed a fun thing called the writing schedule and you get to see every single episode 
you know, let's say you got picked up for, for 20 episodes, you see all 20 episodes and all of the due dates for your premises, for your outlines, for your scripts, you know, each script draft. version one, two, yeah. each draft. Yeah, exactly. Draft one, draft two, polished draft your record date for that episode. Um, so you really, you're given all the tools to kind of plan ahead because once you're in the full swing of production, as a staff writer, you might be finishing up, you know, the second draft of one episode while starting a premise for your next episode. Um, and, and you'll be juggling your own. And it's interesting, right? Because we talk about ownership of an episode or a, or a script, but as we've you know, mentioned, it's a, it's a very collaborative medium. So everyone is assigned an episode usually. Um, and like, it will have a credit, uh, like once it's finally produced and out in the world, it will have a credit that says like written by Isabel Galupo. But when you have a staff, uh, a room of staff writers, like every single person in that room has contributed to your episode, right. whether that be even just with gags, um, whether it be with like, helping in a story break, right? That step from between premise and episode, every single staff writer is involved in those meetings to help the person who whose name is gonna be on the episode at the end of the day, who is writing it and, and doing the, the bulk of the work, but um, we all really lean on each other and we all, we all help each other make every single episode better. So when you're a staff writer, you're not just responsible for your own episode you're responsible for like helping to contribute to a consistent voice right mm -hmm. of um of the show and the characters that you're writing for and to just call out things that um you know you know sometimes when i'm working on something like i'm so plugged into it i like definitely have blind spots or i, I i'm too emotionally attached to one aspect of the story that i'm not seeing that it's actually not servicing our characters the way that it needs to or servicing like our right. brand needs the way that it needs to and so having a room of staff writers who are reading every single thing that every single writer in the room is you know submitting from springboard to draft is super helpful to to help kind of catch that um, and it's also like it only behooves you as a staff writer to to pay attention and to mm -hmm. read the other staffers materials because it's going to make yeah. you a better writer and and um inspire you and and get you excited about what you're writing and i think the show benefits like a lot of shows like i mentioned are moving more to the freelance model and i think it's a bummer because it's to save money but right. the show suffers when you've got a group of maybe five six people all thinking about the show and these characters all the time as opposed to just one or two people yeah it just helps so much make a richer better show a hundred percent and I also think like it just when you have because you're spending a lot of time <laughs> with the with the other staff writers in the, yes. in the staff room um like a lot and so you you know that kind of con continuous built-in conversation that you you get to have with those people like um you know let's say we're in a room and like I can come in on Monday and be like hey like Dan said something on our Friday meeting that like I couldn't stop thinking about over the weekend and it inspired this idea what if we you know had these two characters fall in love or whatever it is oh. but like <laughs> except not really because the typically in kids media they frown on relationships oh right 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 right, right, right. Uh, and then they'll be like Isabel save that for your novel um <laughs> but but yeah like the the opportunity that you get to kind of to form these relationships with other staff writers is really crucial to to your point, Kendall. Just the show and and yeah. and 
it takes the pressure off too. Like if you're having a bad day or if you're having a day where you feel really blocked, like let, let another staff writer shine. Like that's, you know, it's not yeah. a competition. Um, and I think with the, when, it, when just speaking from experience, when I freelance, I'm like, oh my God, like I have to, <laughs> like, I'm the only person, it's like me and the story editor, but you know, I don't, I know they're busy. I know they're working with 40 other freelancers. Like I don't want to bug them. So like, there's a lot of pressure to just like be very funny or have these come up with these genius yeah. ideas and with a staff room you can really kick it out and be like guys I'm having a really hard time with with my act two out like can you help me because I just I've racked my brain and I don't know what it is and there's no shame in that it's it's encouraged yeah it's a pretty glorious process having all those folks to kind of lean off lean lean you know on and and bounce stuff off of uh you know uh as someone who has both, you know, like we all have created stuff in a void on my own and then also gone in and created stuff with other people. Like the, <laughs> you know, they both have their pluses and minuses, but creating stuff with other people, sharing creation with other people is such, it's such a revelatory um, and wonderful feeling. And I like, I wouldn't trade it for anything. It's it's so uh, uh, satisfying and it's better. I mean, like, you know, yeah. there's nothing better than the feeling of like collectively with five people after banging your heads against the wall, trying to figure out a joke or a transition out of a scene or whatever, then someone coming in the next day and having cracked it and you're all just like, yes. <laughs> Speaking of that, camaraderie in the uh, writer's room let's talk about what what the writer's room looks like who's in there and what yeah. their roles are do we start at the bottom there's no bottom <laughs> we're all on we this all ladder equal. together if there were a bottom <laughs> yes um, <laughs> so so the person who is uh uh kind of in between you there the writer's assistant or the script coordinator uh i i have found in animation as opposed to live action. In animation, I found that the writer's assistant and script coordinator have a lot of overlap in their jobs and it really varies from production to production. Yeah, yeah. They can be interchangeable, but, but I think both of them should be basically the backbone of the writing side of production. So they are the glue that brings together the showrunner, story editor, head writer, staff writer, all the freelancers, all their disparate schedules. So some shows may have one or the other, uh, some may have a dedicated writer's assistant, but have a script coordinator who is also working on multiple other shows. But I think the main difference, if there is one, lies with the level of contact with the rest of the production staff. Mm -hmm. So a writer's assistant, I think, is generally more focused on the writing team, taking notes in writer's rooms, uh, helping the showrunner or the head writer with day-to-day -day managerial needs, collecting, compiling notes, Bible changes, et cetera. Whereas a script coordinator might also be more involved with uh, meetings with production staff, such as production managers, production coordinators. And they're often uh, the bridge between um, the production and the writing staff. So again, the duties cross over and are often yeah. a lot the same. There's like dealing with the planning side of recording sessions, numbering scripts, conforming scripts, making sure all line changes and pickups and ADR lines are accounted for. But the end goal of a writer's assistant or a script coordinator is to really be that backbone for the writing side of animation. 
um, that's what that I think that job is is really all about. And that's typically the most entry level job to get you into a writer's room. That's like yes, how you can get that first in, one without in, any other in live action. In live action, there's also writers PAs, but I haven't really yeah. encountered writers PAs in in um, animation. I haven't either. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. Um, and even some studios, I wish there were a, a default for everywhere. Um, I've had what was a script coordinator, but they were called an associate production manager. <laughs> so there's also just like the titles can completely change, but they essentially yeah. all do the same thing. And all three of us have done that at some point, which I think is, I would say, very helpful for someone who oh, is absolutely. a writer because you know, first of all, just on a human level, you know what that person's going through and can be yes. kind to them. <laughs> yeah. And then also, you know what they're going to have to deal with if you turn in a script that has horrible formatting or tons of typos mm -hmm. or it goes on and on that's something that falls to them so it's very i was definitely thinking about this for for um one of our later segments but i i like i couldn't i would always advocate working your way up yeah know, production yeah um, it's it's invaluable as a writer uh i mean we can say, I'll, 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 we can chat Good more feelings. about that later. You've got feelings. We'll chat about them. Um, sort of the next, I don't even know if it's step up. Sometimes it's a step up. Sometimes it's you're promoted into this next position. But sometimes this can be an entry-level position. Like I know some people who maybe went through a fellowship or just had really great samples right. and they weren't ready to be a staff writer. But some studios are now doing this thing they call writer's apprentice. Um, I know Disney mm -hmm. TV does it. I haven't. I don't know that I've actually heard of any other studios doing it. Maybe individual shows. I was going to say some studios don't know what it is, but when pressed might allow it. Because it is, I, yeah. I think it is, there is a union designation for it. It is apprentice story person. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, and so it's like you get to write a script and you get to participate in the room, but you don't have all the duties of a script coordinator. So it's kind of like this in between, like the name suggests, apprentice. You're there to learn and then hopefully be promoted to full staff writer when the opening and time allows. Yes. Plus yeah, you get to be I'm, called an apprentice, which is very I mean, Star Wars. What more do you want? Okay, not a sexy name necessarily is staff writers, which I've already talked a lot about. But um, I think it's interesting, right? Because I mean, I think we've all known, and I've certainly experienced too, like at that step of writers, assistant or script coordinator, um, you can have multiple of those jobs before you get promoted. That's mm -hmm. not unheard of. Mm -hmm. um, obviously the goal is to write, be a, a script coordinator, a writer's assistant on a show that is like a hit for your studio and yeah. has like five seasons. So if you come in as a writer's assistant, script coordinator in season one, get to know the lay of the land, maybe freelance by the end of season one, maybe, you know, maybe freelance into season two, or um, if, you know, and then anytime new, you know, writers leave, um, and there's an open spot, then you get promoted within that show, and then you become a staff writer that way. Um, but sometimes that just doesn't happen. There's sometimes shows only have one season, that's it. Um, and so I think, I don't think it's unheard of to, to have had those kind of entry-level positions of, on a few different productions um, mm -hmm. before you, you get the opportunity to get promoted to, to apprentice or, or staff writer. Um, and then once you're a staff writer, and I'd love to hear what you guys think about this too, because again, I'm, I'm only on my second staff gig ever. Um, I think that like, it's pretty typical to work at that staff 
level writer for many years, right? And and maybe start maybe freelance in between gigs, mm -hmm. maybe start getting those development deals like we kind of have been hinting at. Um, always with the hopes of of. I mean, maybe not, maybe not everyone hopes to become a story editor, a showrunner, EP, that kind of stuff. But, but it, it typically, I would say that people, I've seen people be in that staff writing position on different shows for like three to five years before kind of moving up to, to that story editor um, or showrunner position. Yeah. I would say definitely. And I think we've already touched on this, but animation rooms are a lot smaller typically than live action. So staff writers, you might have three to six, I would say is mm -hmm. a good guesstimate. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then if you're a smaller room, you might freelance some of your episodes, which should hopefully go to the script coordinator, writer's assistant, writer's apprentice first, and then yes. move outside as needed. Um, so yeah, after staff writer is the story editor, which is the animation term for head writer. Some shows do call it head writer. Mm -hmm. There's weird names for everything. I think yeah, the biggest difference is in live action, they have like five different levels. Maybe it's not that many, but it feels like it. So you'd be staff yeah. Story editor is just the next step mm -hmm. up. It doesn't mean head writer in live action. Then you've got like yeah. co-producer, producer, executive producer. All of those are writers, but they get different titles the longer they've been yeah, working in general. There is a, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, there is a like, a weird kind of dissonance between live action story editor and animation story editor, right? Yes. And I, if I understand correctly, uh, live action story editing is a is not as um, it's not as high of a position as the story editor is in animation, right? And I think right. there's a lot of confusion over that when people yes. with animation resumes go into yes. uh, live action and and get snubbed. I so think a lot of to clarify. Yes, I think a lot of animation writers I've seen have now just started using the term head writer, even if that's not their credit. They've used that on resumes or on LinkedIn or whatever, just because it's a more like Humble. lay people will know what they're talking about. Because <laughs> you're like, right. story editor, what does that even mean? Right. There is some talk in the guild of trying to come up with more levels, but who knows? For now, these are what we've got. Um, so after story editor slash head writer, and sometimes you'll get teams also, I should mention. Sometimes you'll have two story editors. Uh, and then also the story editor might be the showrunner. They might not have a separate head writer person. They might just also be that, that person. I do not envy that person. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's too much. The showrunner. The showrunner is... Um, or executive producer. I often have both titles, right? Uh, executive producer is usually what shows up on the actual credits. Yeah. Um, but I think a showrunner is the more colloquial term. And they're the, they're the captain. They're the captain of the ship. They're uh, in charge of all the crew members. They're also in charge of navigating that ship through the sometimes rough waters of studio and network notes. So every major decision goes through the showrunner. And depending on the showrunner, even sometimes minor ones as well. Oftentimes a show creator will become the showrunner uh, and showrunners can come up from any track. They can come up from the writing side or they can come up from the art slash story side. Occasionally they can come up from the production side, uh, but once they're up there, they are generally making the final decisions on all aspects of the production. So the line producer, the head writer slash story editor, the supervising director, the art director, the post-production team, all of them answer to the showrunner. Yeah. And then you touched on notes. Our favorite topic, 
Uh, notes. Uh, I'm going to do a whole separate episode on notes and like the art mm-hmm. of addressing them and giving yeah. them. So we don't need to go get into too much detail on like the okay. the craft of notes so much, but let's go through just describing what kind of notes you get at each step of the process. So um, the first kind of notes that you will get, and these are notes that come at every stage, right, throughout the writing process. So we mentioned springboard, premise, outline, draft. We get notes on it all. It's a, it's a never-ending cycle. And you'll typically get studio notes from studio executives. And right, the studio is the company that is literally responsible for the production of the show that you're working on. And um, sometimes the studio is the same as a network, right? Like, let's say I'm working on a show for Nickelodeon and uh, we're producing the show in-house with in-house artists, all that kind of stuff, in-house writers. Um, But, and then we're also gonna be airing it on Nickelodeon's channel. But sometimes it's not always Right, like some Nickelodeon has sold things to Netflix and it, that didn't go on their channel as well. So, right. um, or that wasn't exclusive to their channel, I would say. So um, sometimes the studio and network are, are the same, um, but sometimes they're different. So you'll get two different sets of notes, which is super fun. But a studio note will sometimes tied to like branding. Um, again, if it's if it is if it is one of those studios that also has the same network. I'm trying to think of like what different kinds of notes you'll get from a studio that's just producing it versus a network. Um, like I, I do think branding comes into play. I think sometimes um, if there's like consumer products, sometimes like if you know you're on a show that's very toyetic and they'll be like, you know, we're we're thinking about <laughs> releasing a line of like uh, roller skating ninja turtles. This is not you've a used true one story. Of, you've used one of my PTSD words, which is toyetic. Toyetic. I know. I'm yeah. so sorry. <laughs> I worked on the network side of things for two and a half years, so I'm slowly trying to also like get that stuff out of my system. <laughs> yeah. Just purge it. But so that's the kind of stuff that can come from studio often. Um, Sometimes studio will just give like like general like story notes about you know yeah. being like like I don't know like this it feels unrealistic that like this the whole gimmick that we use to get into the story feels unrealistic like why wouldn't they right. just, why wouldn't they just you know not tell a lie <laughs> or like why wouldn't someone just call them out for it? like whatever it is um, <laughs> or also sometimes again it'll be like you know for this the age group. Um, sometimes we'll, we'll be for the age group in mind too, of like, especially on the more preschool end of things of like, oh, we're not really sure. Like if mm-hmm. um, preschoolers will understand the concept of imaginary friends, that's a note that I've gotten before. So it, it really depends, I think, on the other players too, and, and what kinds of notes other people who are giving notes are, are responsible for, if that makes sense. Right. Um, but I mean, this is a caveat we've been doing this whole episode is it just really depends on the show. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and how involved your executives want to be. Some of them are okay. very hands-off and are just reading it almost as a courtesy. And like, they're like, great, mm-hmm. we love it. We have one note. You're awesome. Or we have no notes, which is the actual dream. That's the dream. Oh, uh, no notes. Well, you, you talked a little bit about network as well and how they kind of overlap. But network notes can also be a thing that happens. Uh, <laughs> we we hope they don't, but sometimes in conflict with the studio notes, right? Um, 
And well, so we should say we call it network because that's kind of a it's kind of a vestige of the past, right? When everything went through cable slash broadcast broadcast networks. But nowadays it's kind of the catch-all term for the place where the show will air or stream or ultimately live. Uh, and they obviously have a vested interest in how the show turns out. And like you were saying, places like Nickelodeon can be both the studio and the network. Then there's places like DreamWorks where are, they are this generally just the studio and they are um, contracted out by a network uh, like Netflix. But generally the network will have some input. Uh, and the network input that usually comes down is is generally trying to keep the show on brand with the style and overarching themes of the network, right? So if you think especially about the cable or broadcast networks, you'll notice um, that while they may have a bunch of different shows, those shows fit within the overarching brand, as Isabel was, was touching on, of that network. If we think about, you know, children of the 90s, Nickelodeon and Cartoon Network, back then, you know, they were very, you could say, oh, that's a Cartoon Network show. Mm -hmm. You know, Dexter's Lab, very Cartoon Network, and so on and so forth. But yeah, generally, the guidance from the network is to keep the show on that path. Yeah. And then a, a fun department, the most fun. These people have the most fun job. Very fun. <laughs> that you get notes from is Standards and Practices, more commonly known as S&P. And these are the folks who send things like, where are their helmets? Why aren't they wearing a seatbelt? And you oh, might think... Oh, oh, so you mean not fun. Anti-fun. The fun suckers, <laughs> quote. The cinematic masterpiece, Freaky Friday. The remake <laughs> with Lindsay Lohan. Oh, okay. Obviously. To be yeah. more specific. To give them some credit, they their job is important. They're trying to keep our audience safe and not do anything that could be uh, mimicable that would cause the children... To hurt themselves. Yes. So S&P, you have to do them. That was one of the, the next subject of notes we're going to talk about is more of a for consideration. S&P comes from the legal arm of the company and you have yeah. to address them. I will say just having been on the network side of things, one of my, one of my big jobs was to barter with the S&P team. So um, on behalf of the production, right? So I, wow. and I think it's different on every show. Um, sometimes S&P just sends the notes directly to showrunners, mm -hmm. but sometimes they, they filter through the executives. And so on the shows, I worked on um, SpongeBob SquarePants and Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And mm -hmm. I was the contact that S&P sent the SMP, their notes on each episode. And I, before I sent them over to the production team to address, I would be kind of like that first line of defense of being like, well, okay, I hear what you're saying. Can we compromise and do this instead? So sometimes there is wiggle room, definitely not with things like broken glass or seatbelts or helmets. Yeah. But mm -hmm. my favorite. My favorite negotiation I ever did with SP was on an episode of SpongeBob SquarePants where Patrick and Bubble Bass were interacting. And Patrick. <laughs> You've told me this one. It's <laughs> <laughs> so good. Uh, and the episode is out now, too, I believe. Um, but so this is a little BTS. Um, but Patrick is, and is interacting with Bubble Bass, and Patrick kind of like falls and trips and like his face falls into Bubble Bass's butt crack. <laughs> and um, 
and his face gets kind of stuck for a second in the uh. butt crack and he has to like use his hands to like physically remove himself from the butt crack and SMP was like a this is gross B this like it's not okay and so I was the person who had to be like okay I hear you but what if Patrick's face doesn't fall into the butt crack but just like lightly taps the butt cheeks and then bounces off and is that okay yeah yeah will that be okay and they were like yeah we'll give you that so so there there can be some room for negotiation there they're basically they're dealing with they're, they're also dealing with FCC guidelines things like yes, that because yes, we had yeah. we had an issue on um, uh, re- recurring issues on transformers um, with toy related things so you can't show um, you can't show toys uh, on screen in a kids show because it's an FCC violation so that is just another thing that S and P would would call out because toys is you know considered advertising and the way that toy shows get away with it is by giving them personalities. So like the Transformers, you can go buy them in the store, they're toys, but on the show, they're people. So right. that's okay. But if you show an actual toy, that's a no-no. Yeah, wild. Uh, one category I didn't have on here that I'm gonna throw in real quick is, um, we said studio might cover brand notes, but sometimes you have your own separate brand department yes. that will give separate notes, especially if it's existing IP that has had like a Transformers or a Turtles where it's like, there's been many shows, there are many toys, there are many movies. And so it's someone's job mm-hmm. to be overseeing the integrity of it as a whole. Yeah, And those notes can be interesting because you're like, well, we're trying to do something different and they're like, great, we want you to do something different, not that different. <laughs> it still right. has to be in line with the toy, the product that we've had for 50 years. Right, the legacy of this thing. The legacy, yeah. yeah. Right, you can't, yeah. you can't necessarily just go fully opposite of, yes. of these. Because it could, you know, alter viewership, toy sales. There's, there's things to consider. There's a precedent that's been set. Oh, interacting with, you know, working on a show that has a massive toy company behind it is a whole other, that is a, a whole other episode, I think. Yes. Right? It, we, maybe got, maybe many episodes. Yeah. <laughs> the last category of notes is... Educational. Uh, educational. Yes. So this is something that you, I mean, Kendall, you had teed it up earlier too, of like, um, often it will be more for your consideration notes, not necessarily things that you have to take, but, and this, you know, educational consultants, um, you'll most likely see these in preschool, um, where like an educational curriculum is present and part of the storytelling and often sometimes part of the like pitch for that, that show at the, you know, it's the thing that sets that show apart is a STEM curriculum or, um, you know, a very specific emotional social curriculum um and so educational consultants will be hired and it and it really depends show to show sometimes i was on a show where we had a consultant just for the first handful of episodes and then you know she kind of quietly went into the night and then there were some shows that every single episode went through an educational consultant and and it was much more of a a working partnership and um and in in those cases too when when the educational department is you know doing so much and giving so many notes. I, I found at least in my experience that the, there's 
um, it's still always a conversation, but it's still more, okay, we're going to default to this person who we're, you know, paying to go through every single episode. But, you know, notes that you can find um, or expect from these types of consultants are things like uh, four-year-olds don't actually uh, know what a pun is. <laughs> they don't understand wordplay. You know, things like, even just like, what are an interest if, if you're writing a show, um, like a bridge preschool show that's for four to seven, let's say, um, an educational consultant can come in and be like, well, the story that you're telling is actually more appropriate for like the social concerns of a seven-year-old, but like four-year-olds don't really, they're not really that concerned what their friends think about them the way that a seven-year-old, they're not as self-reflective in that way. So like, how can we kind of compromise or, or alter the story lesson or theme so right. that like, we're not doing something that goes over a four-year-old's head, which I've always found, it's very interesting getting these kinds of notes from educational consultants and TV writing because um, I did, a, I never finished, but I did a year of an MFA in writing for children at the new school in New York. And oh. um, in a picture book writing class, we, we read a text that was basically like, kids' brains develop slowly. <laughs> um, and like, you know, if they aren't, if their brain isn't at this, this point or they, they're not at this point developmentally that they can really understand the nuance of this thing, they'll just skip yeah. over it and it doesn't matter to them. Like yeah. they don't, yeah. they don't really care. Like it's not going to yeah. take away from the story. Um, they just will kind of forget that one part that they don't understand. And then it, it kind of leads to cool conversations too later on down the road. Like if they pick that book up a few years later and they're like, oh my God, I didn't realize that the story was about this. And I've certainly had that experience just as a kid reading yeah. things that were like way too age inappropriate for me. And then like coming back as an adult and being like, oh my God, I can't believe I read this yeah. as a kid, you know, like, but it's, it's not, I think sometimes in what I've experienced in TV is that educational consultants are like, we cannot put this. And maybe it's because it's, it's a more, um, like in your face visual medium than even like a, a picture book. Obviously there are pictures in the picture book, but they're not moving. So I think there's, you know, in terms of violence and stuff like that, obviously that's always off the table. But I think that it's interesting that those kinds of notes come in and are like, we have to completely avoid this. And I mm -hmm. wish there was a little bit more conversation about like, well, what if we didn't avoid it and we, we treated it carefully yeah. and, and did more tests about the kids and said like, did it bother you that you didn't know that thing? And probably we would see that kids were right. like, no, I liked the deck and it's yeah. fine. <laughs> Which you and, just mentioned, and, you just mentioned testing. So sometimes that's a part of the process too. Right. Yes. Um, that's not a step we mentioned earlier. Occasionally, especially on preschool and bridge shows, there will be a whole step for testing where between premise and outline, usually we make a storybook and they take a picture book version of your episode, read it to children in a school setting and get the children's feedback, which can then be, that's part of the educational notes. The education team will send you those as notes. Hey, sometimes they're helpful. Hey, this kid got really scared. Maybe tone down that scene. Sometimes they're silly. Hey, this kid loved the juice box. Add more juice boxes. Okay, we're not right. going to do that one. But Replace your protagonist with a juice box. <laughs> make it a juice box show. Kids will love it. Okay, let's move on to union versus non-union, which another is another thing I had no idea about until it was thrust upon me. Um, yeah. do, we'll definitely do a deep dive union discussion in a later episode because it's there's many confusing details and a lot to be said. 
but just to give us an overview of what it even means and the two potential unions you would join. Yeah, so so the first one kind of naturally for animation is the Animation Guild. Um, the Animation Guild was founded in 1952. It's what we call a local shop because it uh, covers only Southern California. And it's under the broader IATSE, so that's the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees under the broader IATSE union umbrella. So the major animation studios and a lot of the minor ones all have an agreement with TAG, as we call it, the Animation Guild TAG, which makes them union shops in the colloquial, in the parlance. Um, so if you write for a show uh, at a union shop, you're on a union show, and you get enough hours to qualify within a certain time period, you uh, are required to join the union. When you join, you get the usual, like the, the usual organized labor benefits, health insurance, um, retirement benefits, um, and it also entitles you to union minimum rates of pay, uh, which we'll discuss more in a second. Um, now, a lot of people, if you're just looking at this from a layperson's per perspective or from slightly outside, will get confused about writers being covered by the Animation Guild, since we are not animators. And there's a whole discussion about that that cycles in and out of union meetings inevitably every few months or so. But the other union that covers animation writers is... The Writers Guild of America, yeah. also known as the WGA. Right. So some shows, especially those primetime shows, like we talked about at the beginning, those adult animation, like A Family Guy, I believe, some of those mm -hmm. that are on network channels still are all covered by the WGA. A lot of the adult animated shows that are now on streamers, like A Big Mouth, Big Mouth might already be covered, but some of those other ones, uh, maybe Central Park, some of the newer ones are trying to get their shows covered by the WGA. They're always able to take it if the people making the show can get the studio to pay up and sign on to be a Writers Guild show. Another weird loophole is a lot of Canadian animated shows, even in the kids space, are in the Canadian yes. Writers Guild. So you can join yeah. the Canadian Writers Guild and then segue that into a WGA membership. Most of the shows though that we've worked on and that any animation TV writer in the kids space works on will be Animation Guild. Great health insurance, great guild, far lower minimums than the WGA. So that's why every couple of yes. years, animation writers are like, look, get us in the WGA. We want higher pay and residuals and script fees, yes. all that stuff. The, uh, they have a they have a slightly different system for residuals than than live action do. So in in, in the animation guild, uh, animated shows do get residuals, but they are uh, per the agreement automatically deposited into the benefits program of the guild. So the retirement and uh, I believe also the healthcare plans. Wow, I did so not that's know where, that. Yes, that's that is uh, uh, and if I am. If I am speaking incorrectly, many people will hunt me down, but I'm, I am 99% sure that our residuals go towards our retirement plan. Yeah. Uh, the argument is, you know, that, uh, that some people put forward is, you know, we'd rather have control of our own residuals and it's nice to get that little check in the mail every month. But um, yeah, part of the reason I think why our retirement benefits are, are so good and, and our fund is strong is that our residuals go into there. That makes a lot of um, sense. Yeah. It is a great retirement plan. 
Yeah. So that's the, and the, one of the things I didn't know before I had my first guild job is you're required to join. Once you pay dues, you pay a quarterly, um, once you pay your initial like joining dues, then it's a quarterly mm -hmm. dues. They're pretty low. It's great health insurance. Yeah. Um, as long as you keep your hours up in the guild, you always have the same health insurance. It's not changing from job that's to job. That's the trick. Uh, yes, the trick, the trick is keeping the hours up. Because you can also, <laughs> unlike um, some unions like SAG for actors, they really don't want you to work non-union. The Animation Guild, you're going to sometimes work on non-union shows. There's no... Yes. People don't... That is the other side, right? There's There are a lot of non-union shops out there, so... Yeah. There's, there's, there's a lot of non-union work to be had. Yeah. So you just kind of have to balance, especially if you're living the freelance life, you know, balance, yeah. making sure you keep up your guild hours versus taking non-union work and finding that balance. Right. Speaking of guild minimums, let's talk about everyone's yeah. favorite subject, money. Yes. This one I think is important because it's another mystery topic that until you're doing it, I had no idea, even a ballpark right. guess. So we're just going to go over general, just to give people an idea. Right. So, and, and these figures, you can find these all on the Animation Guild website and on their collective bargaining agreement. But the current guild minimums for this period are broken down into three categories. So if you're in your first six months of being an animation writer, you can make $48.65 an hour or $1,946 a week. In your second six months, that gets bumped up to $49.75 an hour or $1,990 a week. And then once you've finished your first year of being an animation writer, you become what's called a journeyman. And you are entitled to a minimum of $51.60 an hour or $2,064 a week. And once you are a journeyman writer, you um, can negotiate your rates up from the minimum. That is the the minimum is the bar. No union shop, unless they have a side letter agreement, which some of them do, uh, can offer you less than that uh, to be a staff writer. I've just like wanted to take notes. I feel like I learned so much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm very glad, Dan, that you were able to join us for this because you seem to have a, a, a knowledge of the guild. A little bit. A little yeah. Bit. I also wrote down <laughs> yeah no, you prepared you did your homework <laughs> um so just in terms of like average or median salaries for the different levels like that we talked about earlier um a writer's assistant or a script coordinator uh and all of these are weekly figures so a writer's assistant or a script coordinator typically will make anywhere from 800 to 1200 dollars a week and again just with the caveat that it it's you know, there's some varying, there's always exceptions and varying. Um, yeah, these uh, can differ wildly between studios, between yes, how between much responsibility budget, they're giving yeah. you, your title, but this is just, yeah, ballpark, ballpark. typical range. Yep. Um, yeah, so range for circuit coordinator, uh, 800, 1200 a week. Um, for staff writer, anywhere from 1200 to $2,800 a week. 2100 um, to 2800 Sorry, what did I say? 1200 which um, could be somewhere it could well oh, not because of the not. guild minimums <laughs> oh right 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 right, right. <laughs> sorry uh okay so 2100 <laughs> to 2800 range and and it'll be different right um unfortunately i have seen and in, in my own negotiations with my agent like 
there can be discrepancies between preschool and six to 11. Um, there can be discrepancies between right. 11 minute and 22 minute, right? And just in terms of, um, and there's some biases, especially with the preschool to six to 11 of like, I think people think that it's easier to write preschool than six to 11, um, which I would argue it's the opposite. But anyway, that's for a different podcast episode. Uh, and then just your experience too, right? That's, that's the other big factor of, of how many, right? Like how many rooms have you been staffed in previous? Um, what are you bringing to the table? Um, and that can all help your agent or yourself or your lawyer, whoever's helping you negotiate. The range for a story editor can be anywhere from $2,500 to $3,500 a week. Um, again, based on experience and just various other factors. Um, and then for an EP showrunner level, um, it can be anywhere from $3,500 to $5,000 a week. And then if you're freelance, you're not paid obviously by the week. It's more of a, you turn something in, you get paid for each step. But as far as the total amount for an 11 minute, it's usually in the 3,000 to 5,000 range. You might get 200 for a premise, 1,000 for an outline, 2,500 for the script. For a 22 minute, it's in the 6,000 to $10,000 range and it'll also be broken up. You'll get paid step-by-step. Some shows even have you invoice for first draft, second draft, and polish. They might break right. that up into three different paychecks. It just depends how that show functions. And there's also for freelance, there can be, and this is show by show basis, right? Like if you're in a summit situation, yeah. um, mm-hmm. usually you'll get paid a day rate um, for however many hours you're in the summit. And those day rates are also available on the Oh, thank you. A summit, it happens usually at the beginning of a a show or a show that's going to um, exclusively freelance all of the episodes. Um, Maybe we'll have multiple summits throughout the whole first season, but it's essentially a a big gathering of, I've been in summits where it's like as much as like eight to 10 writers Um, and everyone, there's usually preparation that has to be done before a summit. Um, So the showrunner story editor will kind of like send out an email um, and be like, we're looking for these, you know, these kinds of stories, stories that are focusing on these characters, try to avoid these stories because we already have some of those ideas in the works. And it's just um, an idea generating kind of workshop and how it is organized is really up to whoever the the story editor showrunner who's running it. Um, You can kind of popcorn around and everyone just quick pitch out their ideas and then other people pitch out solutions or additional jokes or additional story points. Um, And then the goal is by the end of the summit to have like a packet of, you know, 10 to 30 springboards that can then be handed out and passed out um, to different writers throughout the duration of the, the production. So again, this is a topic that we could talk about for hours and I will certainly do another episode where it's all about agents and managers but I think anyone starting out has some top line questions about them so we'll just go through a few of these one is do you have to have one no I didn't have one for my first freelance or my first staff job it wasn't until um, I found out my first staff job was ending that I was like oh I should have representation to find my next job I know some people who have, they've risen to a story editor and have yet to have an agent or a manager. So it's definitely doable. I've, it, both have pros and cons. They get 10% of everything you make, but 
they also do all your negotiating and might hear about jobs they can recommend you for. And it's nice to have someone else in your corner. So it just depends, but you don't have to have one. Do you find yours helpful? We can all sort of answer this one. I think a lot of people are just like, it's kind of goes hand in hand with like, do you have to have one? So again, we could talk about this forever, but like in general, are you, all three of us are repped. So I think all three of us feel like we do want to have one. So would you just say like, yes, like for me, yes, Yes. I do find it helpful. I'm glad I have it, even though I don't think you have to have. Yeah, I I definitely find my agents very helpful. Um, They're great. I'm repped by an outfit called Natural Talent and they get me work. Uh, They get me general meetings and pitch meetings. Um, They are also, like we were saying, they're kind of the bulwark when it comes to business stuff. So as a writer, uh, you want to be friendly with everybody. But when it comes to wage negotiations, you can't always be happy-go-lucky about that kind of stuff, right? And that's where your agents come in. They're the ones who fight for you and get your rate bumped up and uh, you get to use them to excuse all sorts of stubbornness. (laughs) Very helpful. Yes. That's such a good point. I never thought about it, but I would, yeah, just have like so much stress in my life if I had to, to bear the brunt of the negotiating what I think I do deserve. Um, But it is very nice to, to, that my agent takes care of that. And I know she's good for it, you know, and, and I can just focus on making a really good impression in the interview so that they're like, well, we, we loved Isabel. She was great in the room. Like we have to have her, you know, I know her, her agent is making out, just give them what she wants. <laughs> it's, it's a really nice, I, I really, I love my agent and I'm super lucky because I think she has more of a managerial style than an agent style. Um, she's on the ground floor of all of my original ideas, like from premise, <laughs> like on, um, she keeps me on a strict writing schedule. She's incredible. And, you know, uh, we, the way that we talk about our, our relationship is really a partnership and, and that we're both using our skills, you know, my people skills and writing skills and her negotiation skills and also her people skills because she has a huge network as well. Um, and that we're both bringing something to the table and just meeting in the middle and, and, and making sure that we're covering all of our bases. Yeah. So I think the three of us would agree. Great to have, would recommend, but you don't have to have one. Don't feel like that should hold you back. You can certainly start getting jobs without Speaking of getting jobs. So another like things I didn't know till I was doing it is writing jobs in animation are the only that I know of animation job that's never posted on a career page of a studio website where all the other jobs are posted. Pretty much any other job in animation, you find an opening, you apply like a traditional job. They look over your resume and portfolio. They interview you. You get hired or not. I've seen one writer job posted in my entire time looking for jobs and it was at Netflix and it was a very specific project that was looking for a very specific type of writer for a preschool show. Right. Oh my uh, God. Okay. I literally know what job posting you're talking about because it is Cause there's so only rare. one. Because <laughs> it was the only one ever. Occasionally those, those job postings will pop up like on Facebook groups and stuff, but they will, like you're saying, being hyper, they're looking for someone hyper specific Yes. You know, someone with a certain experience or a certain background to fill a certain role that no one else can. Yes. Whether um, life experience yeah. or like if it's a STEM show and they want someone who's was a biologist, but is now a right. kid's TV writer for it, whatever reason. It, um, and it seems kind of on, you know, 
uh, on the face of it seems kind of unfair, right? But but the the justification behind it is that you know story editors don't post job listings for writing jobs because they hire people that they know uh, and have read and can kind of trust, like we were talking about, make their lives easier. Um, and not necessarily that they know, but at least that they have, you know, where they've read their work. And I mean, that kind of goes to the importance of networking <laughs> in our uh, little niche of the business. Yes, I would say, yeah. and tell me if you guys disagree, but I feel like there's two, there's the two main paths. It's like, you do get one of those traditional job posting route jobs as a script coordinator, writer's assistant, or anything in production like getting inside a studio yeah. somehow and work your way up more traditionally, or you just have a really great sample and network like Dan just said, and hope you make the right connection and you have a good enough sample that someone hires you to write something. Right. Those are the two, the two ways to get going in this. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, for myself and, and, you know, we always like to add the caveat of like, take it with a grain of salt because everyone's, everyone's path is going to be different. But I mean, like I've seen before, I will always, always advocate for working your way up uh, through a production. I started as, um, as a production assistant and then moved up to script coordinator and writer's assistant from there. And, you know, we touched on this a little bit before, but it really gives you kind of the knowledge of the nitty gritty of how animation gets made um, in as, as, as an animation writer, it's kind of an essential pillar of that writing to know the language of animation production. You know, how your coordinators talk, how your line producers talk, the language of assets and scheduling. So you aren't blindsided when you're writing something into a script and your production manager comes back to tell you that you've just tanked the budget. Oops. You know, and, and, and also like coming up through this path, like if you want to be a showrunner and if you want to be a good showrunner, gives you that primer, that experience to be able to find yourself in that top position and then be able to actually know what people are talking about from, you know, pre to post-production. Yeah. And not only know writing. Right. Yeah. I get this question all the time, which I'm happy to answer, but um, I think what people most want to know is just blanket, how do I get a job writing for TV animation? What would be like your short answer? Is it just apply to be a PA? and work your way up or like what's your go-to advice for that question everyone has yes I mean I this is maybe cheating but I always am just like you just have to like throw pasta at the wall and see what sticks like you got to come at it at every single angle um and I think something that I feel more passionate about more and more is that like not only do you have to network and you have to i Again, I mean, everything that Dan was saying and what you've said to Kendall about working in production, I fully agree with. I think like I've worked with both writers who have production experience and those who don't, and it shows. <laughs> and um, I just think it's really important to know, be able to know and appreciate what everyone else's role on the, the production is besides you. It just, it helps you become a better writer for sure. Um, but you know, I think you have to be attacking it from all sides. And you also have to be like thinking about, 
like when you go to interview for writing jobs, it's, I mean, you're putting on a performance, like you're, you, you yeah. have to kind of also know like, like what you like, we talk about log lines for episodes that we're writing. Like what is your log line as a writer, as a person, what you bring to the table, because it is such a competitive industry. And it is, I mean, to, to your point about like, there's not, there's not public job boards that are advertising these jobs. It's a, it's an elitist, this whole industry is elitist and uh, in that way, but it's an elitist kind of the way that jobs have been in the past filled are old straight white cis dude asks six of his <laughs> straight white cis dude buddies and is like, hey, you wanna come make a cartoon? And I think that's slowly yeah. changing and definitely, like I, I, I never want to be pessimistic about about lack of diversity. I think I think people are aware of it. I think slowly but surely it's changing. I think that um, there are so many different people because it the 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 collaborative nature of animation is great because that means that there are lots of different people making hiring decisions. So there are so many different points at which people can be like, hey, let's make sure that we're hiring. Uh, diversity. Let's make sure that we're expanding our personal network so that the next, you know, that I think that's that's there's so many different points where we can catch that and start and start really diversifying and 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 making sure that we're not making mistakes of the past but i think as a writer you also have a personal responsibility to be like what what am i bringing to the table what makes me different what makes me unique um and whether that be you leveraging your life experience if if you feel comfortable to do so and and talk about that you know or even if it's just like a writing philosophy you know like um, you know, Kendall and I, you've bonded, we've bonded over the past of just being like, we want to make socially conscious stuff for kids. We want kids who haven't historically been represented by TV to feel like they are represented yeah. now. Like that's, that's our mission, you know? And even if it's as simple as like, what is your mission as a writer? Having that in your back pocket, having, knowing what kind of, when you do, because when you're networking and doing these kinds of interviews, people are going to ask, well, what kind of stories do you like to write? And being able to know that off the top of your head means that you've spent time, you know, not only just writing different kinds of stories behind the scenes, but also being like, like for me, I know I'm not, I'm not like a comedian. I'm not like a straight up comedy writer. You know what I mean? Like I, I know that my stories usually come from like a more heart centric place. And like I, me being able to own that and come into a room and be like, this is my thing. This is what I bring to the table. It's going to help differentiate your, your, you from other people who are just like, I'll write anything. And and also help place you in those rooms that are you're going to get the most out of and and vice versa, you know. Mm -hmm. And having that that information about yourself, that knowledge of yourself ready, even in those entry level jobs, like when you're trying to work yourself up, it's useful at any point in time, because like you, you do want to be able to tell people when they ask um, or even unsolicited what <laughs> you want, you know, fight for yourself, be be your own champion especially at the beginning when when you don't really have too many people in your corner me personally when i started as a pa i made it clear from the very first job interview i want to be a writer you know and i would love the chance to work my way up in that yeah. area and you know giving yourself some specificity some some uniqueness or at least just something for other people to latch on to helps them remember you you know down the line when you are uh, uh, when, when opportunities arise, right? Yeah. I think yeah. another important factor that's unique to our job is that 
when you're staffed on a show and you're in a writer's room, you're with these people all day, every day, sometimes mm -hmm. for many hours, whether on zoom or in real life. And so being like a person people want to be around is uh, yes. Yes. pretty key yes. to this yes. job. I know a lot of story editors and showrunners are like, I would take a, a good writer who's also yeah. a good person over mm -hmm. a incredible writer who's a horrible person to be around and not a team player. And absolutely. Uh, so just make that's, sure that that's such a, too. yeah, and that's such a big pitfall too, that I've noticed for people, because, you know, we talk about our, our uniqueness and stuff and we all have like our visions for what we want to do. But a big pitfall in this business is that for a really long time, you know, when you start, you're not working on your stuff, right? I mean, you can reach showrunner level and still not be the final word on the creative vision of a show. So, so one of the things like for me is like, you need to have humility, right? Be that person, be a good worker, be a good person, have humility, take your ego and put it in your fantasy novel like I do. <laughs> right? um, because when you're, when you're a freelancer, ultimately, you know, what you're writing is not yours, right? You're working your creative brain, like we were saying before, inside someone else's world, right? Yeah. And that's a wholly different type of fun and satisfaction um, from creating and controlling your own thing. So you, you want to be the person that, 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 that a story editor, um, a supervisor looks at and is like, that's a team player. Like they make my life easier, you know, as opposed to the person who fights for their creative vision as a PA, <laughs> you know, uh, all and dies on that, dies on that hill, you know, just be ready for that. Cause you know, it, yeah. it can be, it can be hard as a creative having, it's horrifying having your ideas shut down, having your ideas mm -hmm. shut down in front of other people is horrifying. Mm -hmm. um, but you just gotta do it. The you know? job. Can't be yeah. precious, can't be precious about it. Yeah. Um, well, you guys are the best and uh, I really Did appreciate you going on this journey. Yes, it has been a journey. But I feel like this is gonna give people a really good place to start if they don't know anything about what we do. And yeah. Um, like I said at the beginning, you're both will be forced to return and we will get into more details of your specific journeys and, uh, anything you want to talk I will, about. I will, I will come willingly. Anything you have feelings about. I can tell there was a lot of passion behind some of these answers. So we'll, uh, oh, yes. we'll oh, return yeah. to them. Hello. We are writers. We have feelings. <laughs> we have many feelings. All right. Thank you both. And that brings us to the end of today's prologue episode zero of the podcast. Thanks again to Dan and Isabel and to everyone listening. I hope you found it helpful. I definitely did. It was wonderful to hear about Isabel and Dan's experiences and how they were different from mine. If you have any questions or topics you'd like me to dive into with a future guest, please shoot me an email at typeintunes at gmail.com or message me through Twitter and Instagram. We're at Type and Tunes on both. And I've also added some links to other resources and things we referenced, like the Animation Guild contract in today's show notes. 
If you want to hear more now, the first official episode of the podcast is also out. It's a really fun discussion with my one-time boss, forever pal, Nicole Dubuque, about her scripting process. We get into the nitty-gritty of how she approaches writing an episode. Finally, if you like what you're hearing and you found this podcast helpful, I'd really appreciate it if you do the subscribing, the rating, the reviewing, the sharing of the thing. It's the best way to help more writers find it. And we will be back every other Thursday with a new episode.